0: Hi, I'm Shane Bishop. I'm the senior pastor at Christ Church. We're getting ready to start a brand new Christmas series called Lights. I'm so glad you've chosen to join us online. Here is the passage for today. It's from John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Life itself was in him, and this life gives light to everyone. The light shines through the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Matthew 2, 1-12 through 12 recalls a, a really odd story about some wisdom seekers that we take far too for granted at Christmas time. Now we call these guys wise men, and they fit real nicely into nativity sets and Christmas plays, but the reality is almost everything we know about the wise men is wrong. We don't know how many there were, we certainly don't know their names, we don't know exactly where they came from, and frankly, we don't even know that they were men. In fact, almost everything we think we know was relayed to us in the song, We Three Kings, published during the American Civil War, written by John Henry Hopkins, who knew no more about wise men than we do. What we do know from Scripture is that the wise men were non-Jews. They were from the East. They were the intelligentsia of their day. And they were being led by a light in the form of a star, to the light in the form of a baby. So let's open this light series by unpacking an all-too-familiar story that we don't even begin to know. Verse 1, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem under the reign of King Herod. Most people think Jesus was born around 4 BC, and that would line up with the last year of the 40-year reign of Herod the Great. Herod the Great certainly had a lot of accomplishments, but by time he got to the end of his life, he was at least three-quarters nuts. It says, about that time, some magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, and they were asking everybody, where is this new-born king of the Jews? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. Guys, that is going to get a highly paranoid Herod the Great's attention. The Greek word magi is is really what is used in this passage. It's a Persian word, and from it uh, we get the idea of magic or magicians in English. These were men in search of wisdom, and they believed that a star was illuminating their way. They would have been the best educated men of their time, or women of their time, but From this passage, it's clear that these magi were not only astronomers who studied the stars, but they believed that the secrets of the cosmos were revealed in the stars. Something of cosmic importance was going on, and they were willing to cross their world in a caravan not to miss it. Verse 11, when they finally found Jesus, they entered the house, they fell down and worshipped. And they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All very, very expensive gifts that regular people could not afford. The arrival of this child commanded both worship and offering from the Magi. But who was this child that they were making such a fuss about? At first glance, this child appears simply to be the firstborn boy of a working class family who hail from an insignificant village in a minor province of the Roman Empire. But there had to be more than that. Kings don't travel across the desert to pay homage to a regular child. So what on earth could be so important about this baby that the brightest star in the sky is his birth announcement? And How did the magi know that the light they saw in the sky, would lead them to the light of the world. The gospel of John doesn't get a lot of work at Christmas time, and frankly, John has no one to blame for himself but himself because he did not include a Christmas story. While there are no wise men, shepherds, stars, Bethlehem, mangers, baby, there's there's nothing about a Christmas story in John. There is something of great value at Christmas time. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask something of John that he was clearly trying to avoid. We're going to ask him to guide us into Christmas, not because he offers narrative or insight on the nativity because he doesn't. It's because his eyes are so clearly focused on the light. Verse 1, In the beginning the word already existed, He was with God and he was God. In the other Gospels, writers explain the significance of Jesus to Jewish audiences by proving him to be the promised Messiah. By 60 AD, there were probably 100,000 non-Jewish Christians for every Christian Jew in the world. The reality is these Jews, many Greeks and Romans, had no concept of the Jewish Messiah. If John was to spread the light of Christ in the Roman Empire, he was going to need a new metaphor. Enter the Greek word logos, which we simply translate word. For the Greeks, logos was the abstract universal mind that encompassed creation, natural laws, and processes, and logic. John argued that in the person of Jesus Christ, God became flesh. And in Christ, we see the very mind of God. You see, John's claim is we do not have to guess, hypothesize, or conjecture as to the nature of this great mind of God. It is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, life itself was in him, and this life gives light to everyone. I think the light of Christ has two primary functions. Number one, it illuminates us for holy living. So when God is in us, when Christ is in us, we are illuminated for holy living. When I was a kid, we we said pledges to all kinds of stuff. I guess they don't do that much anymore. But at Bible school, we said a pledge to the Bible, and, and it went like this. I pledge to the Bible, God's holy word, And will make it a lamp to my feet and a light to my path and hide its words in my heart that I may not sin against God. And the second thing is that we reflect Christ's light to the world. There's this interesting thing about stars as opposed to planets or moons. Stars have a light source in and of themselves. Planets and moons simply reflect light. You and I have no light within ourselves. But we do have the capacity to reflect the light of Christ to the world. So I got to thinking, what does it mean to be light in 2013? As we get ready to enter 2014, what does it mean for Christchurch to be light in the world? What would it mean for us to be that city on a hill? Ten years ago, I thought my ministry would span a transition time in a cultural shift that I thought would take decades. I was flat out wrong. The shift I thought would span my entire ministry has happened in just a very few years. The bottom line is the world in which I live today has almost nothing in common with the world that reared me. There is much speculation about whether or not the church is going to have a place in this new world. We know that the church had a place in the old world, but will the church have a place in the new world? And my answer is always, it could. It could. So what is the church going to have to do to be light in this new world? Number one, we're going to have to offer Christ and Christ alone. John 18, 12 reads, Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Though the means by which churches reach out to the world must constantly be negotiated. The centrality of Christ for salvation must remain non-negotiable. Our task in the church in the years to come, will be to hold fast to our message, but be creative in the mediums by which we present that message to this new world. Number two, got to stay on mission. The church exists to connect people with Christ. And so churches are going to have to stop doing everything they're currently doing that does not connect people to Jesus Christ. The bottom line is churches in 2014 will not have the Available resources to allow them the luxury of being non-strategic around their mission. Number three, we have to offer hope to a world defined by fear. The Bible teaches that the disposition of the person of faith is hope. And the disposition of the person who's trusting in things other than God is fear. Psalm 27.1 reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Churches that offer heaping doses of hope will find people flocking to them. Number four, the church must transcend the things that divide. The church must offer this divided world, a model for rising above the things that keep us apart. When people of all races... Political persuasions, cultural backgrounds, social economic statuses, ethnicities and sensibilities are all worshiping and serving together in unity. The church will have something to export to this new world. Number five, we have to affirm spirituality. We believe that Christ was born of a virgin. We believe that he performed actual Miracles. We believe that this Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning and we believe that he will return one day for his church. We also believe that God forgives sins, heals broken hearts, has a divine purpose for us and that the creator of the cosmos wants to be in personal relationship with the likes of you and me. Bam! That's our message. There is no apology offered. Number six, the church must challenge materialism. The idea that more things will make you happy is a lie. The idea that the purpose of serving God is to get you more things is an even worse lie. The church must not only refrain from buying into the false religion of materialism, But we must offer a different template entirely. You see, in God's world, you become great through service. You gain wealth through giving. You truly live by dying to yourself. We have to challenge materialism. Number seven, we have to do great good. Young people today don't generally have an issue with the church. They just find the church acronistic and irrelevant. But by feeding the hungry by providing relief from natural disasters and reaching out to the disenfranchised, when we do those things, we invite the inhabitants of this new world to rethink the church. You see, I believe that evangelism in the next 10 years will be as much inviting people who do not yet know Jesus to serve with us as it will be inviting them to worship with us. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 reads, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And then finally, verse 5, The light shines through the darkness, And the darkness can never extinguish it. Here's the deal. God wins. The light wins. You know, the very first thing God says in the Bible is, let there be light. God created a pristine world. And then he gave dominion to humanity. We had it all. We had health and wealth and life and love and passion and purpose and power. And then we gave it all away gave it all away we chose death over life we invited satan to share the planet and satan brought to this world sickness and poverty and death and hate abuse addictions apathy despair and hopelessness the fall was as catastrophic as it was self-inflicted we had everything we threw it away we got what we Deserved. And then, right when no one in their right mind could have blamed God for abandoning us for our rebellion, He did something utterly inconceivable. New Testament loved love overruled Old Testament justice in the heart of our Creator and at our very worst, at our most selfish. And vile. God put on skin. He came to us in the vulnerability of a baby. He lived for us in the mortality of a man. He died for us. Willingly. Paying the price for our sin. Jesus came at Christmas. So We could live when we had squandered the right to life. That's why Christmas is so exciting. That's why God coming into the world, breaking into time and space is so overwhelming. Christmas is really a love story. And Christmas carols are often love songs. So I thought this week, I I thought, what would John's favorite Christmas song be? What would the writer of the Gospel of John's favorite Christmas song be? What would be his favorite song from a guy who doesn't even include a birth story? And then I heard it this week. I think John's favorite Christmas song would go just like this. When the rain is blowing in your face and the whole world is on your case. I could offer you a warm embrace to make you feel my love. The evening shadows and the stars appear, and there is no one there to dry your tears. I could hold you for a million years to make you feel my love. I know you haven't made your mind up yet, but I would never do you wrong. I've known it from the moment that we met, no doubt in my mind where you belong. I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue, I'd go crawling down the avenue. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. John's Christmas story is beautifully recorded in the third chapter, in the 16th and 17th verse. It reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That, my friend, is Christmas, according to John. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we enter this season, may the light that led the Magi well up in our hearts, and may we see that Christmas was your gift of yourself to us so that we could feel your love. And we pray it in the strong name of the Christ, born in Bethlehem. Amen.